song is wow just that yielding to you lord we yield to you to your spirit oh yes lord your spirit lord surrendering our hearts to you this morning Today. 
Emphasis on today. Lord, we don't want to wait before we say, I surrender and yield. I don't want to wait for this fresh fire. I'm asking you now, Holy Spirit, come and work in me. Come and burn away the chaff. Come and ignite passion for you and your presence. We need this fire, this river, this grace of God in our lives. So open our eyes to see, Lord, what you see. Open our eyes today.
Father, we want to thank you for your presence with us today. Thank you that your embrace can be experienced by us, Lord. Uh, it can even be felt by us that you are near to us. And I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue through this service right now and continue to worship you through our giving and through the word, that your presence will linger with us and that your power will be, will be manifest in our midst. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, being Father's Day today, we also have a special little video that we've prepared to share with the fathers today and just to bless and appreciate you. So please enjoy the video with us. His smile and his laugh <laughs> is just super infectious and just makes me happy when I see him smile. Yeah, always. He cares for me, he loves me. Me. My favorite thing is, yes, it's that one, it's that smile right there because he's nervous. <laughs> um, I love when we spend time together and we just look at funny things and we sit, I sit on his lap. I love when he throws his head back and laughs so long until his face turns red and he can't breathe and he does the old man wheeze. I love that. <laughs> the thing I love most about my dad is that he didn't only teach us about Jesus, but that he modeled Jesus for us, and that he taught us to pray and to trust, on, trust in God, depend on God, and that's what I love about him. If she believes in something, she'll never let go of it. Yeah. Well, uh, as a young boy, he was very much alive. And as he grew up, I realized that he's a, a young man, hands-on. Mm. He can do anything. So I'm very proud of him, of stepping out in faith in Christ Jesus, because he knew, started know, knowing the Lord. Mm. I would say your character, the way you are as a person, uh, that you shouldn't change and, and let friends get you off who you are, that your honesty, your your, your integrity, that you're a person who wants to do things the right way, that you should never change from that because people are, are saying it's not cool or it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not right, but to, to, to remain who you are. I was going to come up here. <laughs> Well, today I want to talk about the overflow of restoration and uh, talk about this wonderful, beautiful concept of restoration. 
And I'm sure like me, whenever you see a restoration process taking place, it is something to be appreciated and something that is so beautiful. Whether it's an old vintage car that gets restored, whether it's a, a, a piece of land, a forest that is being restored back to its, uh, its you know, glory, whether it's uh, art that gets you know, restored and used to be dull and, and like the Sistine Chapel that they restored, um, you know, because of the smoke and the dust that made the colors look so dull and then they restored it into its beautiful shining, you know, glory or, or whether it's a person's life particularly that is being restored, that, you know, became in, in disrepair because of bad habits and bad choices and just the, the natural reality of life and then there's a restoration and you see that the beauty the the strength the the wonder of that person's life just beginning to shine through restoration is also something captivating and something so beautiful and i think that's one of the things that we deeply appreciate about who god is is he is the master restorer he is the one that is seemingly able to take anything no matter in what state it may find itself and bring it back to life and back to beauty and back to glory because he is the master restorer. And, and there's so many scriptures that talk about that. But I thought, let me just, just remind you of, of two scriptures of the beauty of who God is and, and his power to restore. Uh, in Psalm 23, this very well-known portion of scripture, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside, beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God is a restorer. And then in Revelation 7 verse 17, where it perhaps talks about the future and, and where we're going and what we're heading towards. It says, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, describing this power of restoration that God has. And I think God is uniquely positioned as a restorer because he was the creator in the first place. There's a story told of this beautiful church in uh, high in the mountains of, of, um, of Switzerland. It's called Mountain Valley Cathedral. And it's a beautiful stained glass cathedral, but it was really well known for the, the organ that it had. Uh, this organ that played the most beautiful music and made the most beautiful sounds of, of worship to God. But over a period of time, the organ sort of fell into disrepair and things went wrong with it. And it started making some really not so great sounds. And, and, and they eventually couldn't use it anymore. And um, the, the people of the church wanted to you know, restore it. But, and so they got people from all over the world, experts that would come every now and then and try and work on this, on this organ to get it fixed. And nobody could get it fixed. And um, so eventually it just sort of was there. Just, you know, it wasn't even completely in, in, in a hole anymore. It sort of broke down and uh, nobody used it. And all that was is some people that could remember how beautiful this organ used to play. One day, an old man arrived at the church, and uh, he was looking for somebody, and he found a, you know, like probably a groundskeeper or somebody that was working at the church, and he said to this groundskeeper, he said, listen, um, would you mind, um, I want to come and listen to this beautiful organ, uh, and the guy said to him, look, the organ doesn't work anymore, nobody, it's failing, and he said, why? He said, well, because it, it broke, and we've had everybody come and try and fix it, and nobody can fix it, so he said, well, would you mind if I take a look and see if I can do something? And because nobody had been successful and it really wasn't being used, the, the groundskeeper sort of felt he'll humor the old man and he'll allow him to tinker and have a look at it. And 
So the old man, for two days, worked almost in near silence to the point where the groundskeeper was getting really worried. What is going on here? And uh, on the third day, round about noon of the third day, suddenly there came these beautiful sounds from this organ. And to the point where people in the village started hearing what some of them could remember. And they came and looked, and there they found the old man playing the organ. And this most beautiful sound was coming out of it. And so somebody asked him, he said, how did you get it right? We got people from all over the world to come and try and fix this organ. Nobody could get it right. What? How could you get this right? He said, well, it's actually quite simple. 50 years ago, I built this organ. And because I built it, I knew how it works. And so I could work and find what was wrong with it. And so therefore I could restore it. And isn't that just a story that tells us about how it is with us and God, that he is the master restorer because he's the creator. He's the one who made us. He's the one that made you. He's the one that made me. And no matter into what state of disrepair our lives come, God always knows what he made us to be and who he created us to be. And therefore, he knows the, how we deviated from that. We spoke about that a lot last week and how to bring us back. God is the master restorer. And we see his power and restoration all over the scripture and in so many different places. But probably one of the greatest stories of restoration in the scripture is how God brought back the people of Israel from slavery to the promised land and restored them to their rightful place, the place that he promised, the place that he created for them to be in as his people. And um, that really was an, an exercise in restoration. And um, we read about it, for instance, God's heart towards the nation of Israel and this restoring that he wanted to do with them. In Exodus 6, verse 6 to 8, he says, uh, Therefore say to the Israelites, God speaking to Moses, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring to you to a land I swore with, up, with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give you as a possession. I am the Lord. The Lord says to Israel, even though you have found yourself in such a desperate place of slavery, having lost so much and being broken down to such a point where you are a slave nation, not the nation of God, not the, not the expression of, of God's kingdom, but a, a nation in captivity. God says, I will restore you. And he uses the word redeem there. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And that, that word redeem means it's the action of, of saving or being saved from sin, error or evil. It's also the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. And we often say the word redeem means to buy back. So the nation of Israel was God's people. Then they were lost into slavery. Now God says, I'm going to buy you back. I'm going to redeem you out of slavery and bring you back to be my people. I will set you free from, from that which is holding you captive. And that, that's the story of God that he journeyed with the Israelites. And, and that's the story of God, of mankind, how he journeys with mankind. And that's the story of how he journeys with you and me. It's this beautiful story of redemption that leads to restoration and him restoring his plans and purposes 
for us. Now, in this journey of restoration that, that covers quite a, a number of chapters in the Old Testament, there's one event that I want to lift out that becomes a little bit of a sort of a, a representation, a smaller view of the story of, re, of, of re, um, restoration and what is needed for restoration to happen. And this is in Exodus 15. So if you can, I'm going to read a, a few verses in Exodus 15 from verse uh, 22 to 27, and I'd like you to Read this, and many of you will know this of this account uh, at, the, at Mara. Um, but I want to just read this with you and just make a couple of comments. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Mara. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. So here's this amazing story. Of now the Israelites have left Egypt and they've been traveling. And the scripture says they've been traveling for three days without water. So they're in a desperate strait. Remember, this is a, a big body of people. This is a large group of people. And the livestock, they need water. They're in a desperate place. Um, and and I'm, you know, it's, we see in scripture how often when the Israelites were in a desperate place like that, then suddenly they would long back for Egypt and they'd think, you know, at least in Egypt there was water. You know, we were slaves, but we had water. We, never, we, we were never going without water. Um, they'd give us water, and, and we wouldn't be so... And, and, you know, they were probably thinking, oh, yeah, we are. We're going to die in the desert. There's no water. Um, and then they, they come upon a body of water. And, you know, you can imagine the, the relief, the instant joy, the, wow, wonderful, there's water, you know. And then the disappointment of, of dipping their, their instruments or their cups or just falling in the water, wanting to drink. And then realizing this water is, is bitter. This water has been contaminated. Something has happened to this water that has made this water unfit for consumption. And, this, and, and the sudden disappointment. And you know, when I don't know if you've experienced something like that, which I'm sure you have. Then you're even more thirsty than what you were before. And, and then it's even more emotionally draining. And you're even more desperate than you were before because of the disappointment. And I think this is a powerful story because it, I think we can all relate to it because so often in life we are hit by the contamination and the bitterness of this world. Every one of us struggles and suffers from things that happen against us that can make us feel like this world is Mara, it's bitter. The waters of this world is bitter. That we can come to a place where we feel everything is just against us and we get disappointed. We, we put our hope in relationships. We put our hope in, in you know, things that we do and plans that we have and our dreams and we put our, our hope in, in so many things uh, and then we get disappointed and the bitterness feels like it's just we're drinking bitterness and, it, and, it, and we start becoming bitter. And we feel like the only way I'm going to survive in this world, the only way I can, I can be tough enough to be in this world is I have to be as bitter as, as the world is. And, and we become hard of heart. And we're just in that place of disappointment and that place of bitterness. And that's where the nation of Israel was. And so they had a problem. But now 
they're supposed to be on a genera- on a, on a sorry a restoration process. They're supposed to be restored by God. Now, how do how does this help to get them restored? Where there was hope in their hearts, and now that hope is dashed again, and they feel so lost and so desperate because of the bitterness that's that they're drinking and experiencing. What's going on? And it's at that point where God teaches them a very valuable lesson, and He teaches them about what are the requirements for restoration. For restoration to happen, to move from something that is the brokenness, the bitterness of this world. And I don't know what it is in your life, perhaps as I speak about bitterness, what comes into your mind? What, what are the things that right now you are dealing with, that you are struggling with, that, that are your disappointments, that are the things that are tugging at your heart, wanting to bring bitterness into your life, wanting to let you succumb to that feeling of bitterness and, and the disappointment of it? The, the, just the hardness of heart, perhaps. What, what in your life right now represents Mara, that bitterness? Yeah, the Israelites were. And, but God says, I want to restore you. But there's, there's two things I want to highlight today that is needed for restoration to happen. Two requirements for restoration. Two things we have to allow to happen and actually be committed and pursue if we want to see restoration. And those two things we see present here at Mara and how God does a miracle for them. And the first thing that, that, that is required is forgiveness. And the second thing is righteousness. And I want to explain to you what I, what I mean by that. Um, when, we, when we see them now here at Mara and the water is bitter, there's no provision for them, disappointment, just a terrible situation. God instructs Moses and he says to Moses, you must take... Uh, um, the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. So, just a piece of wood. The Lord shows it to Moses, and the Lord says to Moses, take this wood and throw it into the water. Now, you and I, with the privilege of hindsight, know that what this piece of wood represents. It's the cross of Christ that it represents. It's this wood that shows was a was a sign showing forward so there was no specific miracle working power in this piece of wood the the miracle was god was showing them how restoration works and the first thing that is required for restoration is forgiveness and for us forgiveness is possible because of what happened on that piece of wood outside of jerusalem on the on Mount, on golgotha where Christ was crucified. It is on that piece of wood that forgiveness was ultimately spoken out towards us. We cannot be restored if there's not forgiveness. If there's no removal from that which broke us down in the first place, if there's no opportunity for, for the activity or the things that we've done or the attitudes that we've had that actually caused us to, to break down and come into a state of risk, disrepair, then how can we be restored? But through forgiveness, what God is able to do is remove from us that which is, has broken us down and is continuing to break us down. It gets separated from us so that healing can begin. It's like, you know, you, you can't be wanting to be healed but be taking some poison at the same time. You, you know, part of the healing is stopping and being removed or having removed from you that which is your, destroying you. And so that's what forgiveness does. And the cross is the place where God gave us forgiveness without any uh, limitation to it, without any d- demand for us, but just to receive forgiveness. And, and Paul describes this to us so beautifully in, um, 
In, in Romans 5, verse 6 to 11, let me read these verses for you. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When we couldn't rescue ourselves and bring restoration into our own lives, Christ died for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is a big part of restoration or, and, and being restored. It's being reconciled with God. And that's possible through forgiveness. And you and I know as believers that forgiveness in the scripture is absolute in this sense that we must always forgive. Just as God forgave us and we didn't deserve, we didn't ask for the forgiveness because we were still evil. We didn't deserve the forgiveness, yet God gave us the forgiveness. God forgave us. Jesus, in, in, in your teaching us to pray, said, forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness is an absolute in that you always forgive. It doesn't matter what anybody's done to us, we forgive. It is the response the scripture commands of us. There's no place where we do not forgive. I mean, we know this from, from uh, uh, in, sorry, now my scripture has gone from me. Uh, in, uh, where did it go? Where Jesus was asked by, by, uh, by the disciples, you know, how many times must we forgive? Must we forgive somebody that does the same sin against us seven times? And Jesus said, no, I tell you 70 times seven. And he was making a point that you always forgive. That forgiveness is absolute. It's hard for us. But it's the choice that is always available to us, is to forgive. It's not something that we do ultimately, firstly for the other person. It's something we do because it's what God requires of us. We forgive because God says we have to forgive. And then we forgive because it has benefit for us. It, it makes it possible for that which has been hurting us to be removed from us, to stop hurting us, to not continue to hurt us. And that's what forgiveness does. And without forgiveness, there cannot be restoration. I cannot be restored in something if I keep in the unforgiveness, because then that bitterness will take root in my heart and take hold of my heart, and I will be captured in bitterness. So forgiveness is required for restoration. It's the first thing. But it's not the only thing. For real restoration to happen, there's the second thing that is required. And that is to have a commitment towards righteousness. For righteousness to be present. And, and we see this in Exodus 15. First of all, God gave the piece of wood, threw it on the water, and then the water was cleansed. But that's not all God did. God didn't stop there and say, okay guys, now you're fine, you can drink the water, life's good. He said to them, now I'm going to make a decree and you have to listen to me carefully. And there's something more that you need to do than just receive my forgiveness. And then he said to them in verse 25 to 26, Then the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen to the Lord your God and do what is right 
in his eyes. If you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. If you do what is right. So the first thing he said is you need to forgive and then he, or, or receive forgiveness and then forgive and live in forgiveness. And then he says, but then you have to have a commitment to do what is right. Righteousness. You have to pursue that which is right. And this is, these are the two things that are required. If we want to see restoration in our lives, uh, in our lives to, with God, in our relationship with God, in our relationship with other people, in anything in this world, if we want to see something restored, then th there has to be a removal of that which broke it down in the first place. That's forgiveness. And then there has to be a commitment to do what is right so that that can be restored. I mean, think about it like, you know, we have this massive deforestation problem with so many of our natural forests and being destroyed. Now, for that restoration of a forest to happen, there, there has to be these two parts. There has to be a recognition that what we've done is wrong. We, we, we have to stop doing that. We have to confess that it's wrong. We have to ask for forgiveness in a sense and say, no, we're not going to do this anymore. But if we just recognize it's wrong, that's not going to restore the forest. We may stop destroying the forest, but we're not restoring it. Then if we say, now we're going to do what is right, we're going to now begin to allow for this forest to be regenerated, and we're going to plant, and we're going to create the environment. We're going to be positively pursuing and having a commitment to do what is right. Then that forest will begin to be restored. And so it is in our lives. There has to be a commitment to forgiveness if we want to see restoration happening. In our relationship with God, I have to have a commitment to receive God's forgiveness. And then I have to have a commitment to say, and now, Lord, I'm going to follow your decrees, and I'm going to do what is right in your eyes. That The journey of restoration can then move forward, because God can do in my life what is necessary. And so it is, if I want to see restoration in my life, let's say, for instance, in relationship with other people. I have to have a commitment towards forgiveness. If I've done something wrong towards somebody, I have to ask their forgiveness. And, I, and even if they don't want to forgive me, God will forgive me and I can receive forgiveness. And then secondly, I have to have a commitment to say, and now I'm going to do what is right. That's why we always talk about how restoration has these two parts to it. And um, it has the removal and, the, and then the adding. It's the negative side is the moving away from, from what destroyed. And the positive side is rebuilding what will give life. And so we have to have that commitment. And so often I think as Christians, we only focus on forgiveness. And we think all that is needed for restoration is forgiveness. Um, you know, so if I've done something wrong to somebody, I say, well, I'm so sorry, just forgive me and then everything will be fine. Now, sometimes, it, sometimes that's all that's needed is a, a, a repentance and a forgiveness. But often there's more that is required. There is a commitment to righteousness, a physical, real commitment to righteousness, to do what is right that is required. I want to tell you a story of something that happened in my own life. When I was about 19 years old, um, I was in my military service, and a, one day a bunch of us, friends of ours, wanted to go out for an evening. And uh, so we asked a friend of ours if we could lend his car, and he, he gave it to us. It was his brother's car, and he said, listen, it's my brother's car. If something happens to it, it's going to be big problems. You need to look after it. And so we went out for an evening, and uh, uh, as we were coming back, and one of the other guys were driving, and um, we had an accident. And uh, the car got quite seriously damaged, 
And uh, we got back to the unit and we told our friend that, listen, this is what happened. And, um, you know, was terrible and everything. And he had to speak to his brother and speak to his parents. And they finally said, look, the insurance is going to cover the cost of the fixing of the car. But there's an excess, obviously, that has to be paid. And um, I can't remember the exact details, but I think it was 600 rand that we had to pay because there were six of us and we each had to give 100 rand. And so we made that commitment. We said to him, look, we're each going to give you 100 rand to cover the, uh, the excess, at least in that way, you know, so that the insurance can fix the car. What unfortunately happened, however, is a bunch of the guys didn't follow through on that commitment. And, and uh, that happened sort of during our early training days. And many of them were then placed out into different units. We lost contact with them. And uh, as far as I can remember, I was the only one that actually gave him the money and nobody else did. But I then came and did LTS at Year of Your Life. So about 18 months later, I was busy with LTS and the Lord spoke to me. And obviously this has been bothering me because what actually happened when we lent the car is I said, I will look after it and I will make sure that it'll be fine. And the Lord reminded me of that and he said, you took responsibility. I said, Lewis, and that's why I paid back. But he said, the Lord said to me, you need to restore this situation. And the only way you can restore that is if you give him back the money that he was supposed to get. Even though you gave yours in the first place, but you promised you will look after the car. You borrowed the car from him, and it's therefore your responsibility. And that's what I felt in that situation. I didn't have the money, as many of you know my story. You know, I didn't have money at that stage. I don't even know how I got the money, but I trusted the Lord. I got the money together, 500 rand in those days. You know, this is 1989. There's a lot of money. And for a person particularly that didn't have any money. And I had to find this guy, look him up, and eventually found him. And then went to his parents' house, which wasn't an easy thing to do because they were not happy. You know, when I told, he went, probably when he said to them, who's coming, they knew. And, you know. and then I went to their house and I gave him the money. And I said, listen, even though, you know, I didn't owe you this money, I just know that I made the promise that I would look after your car. And that it's only right that you get your money back. And so I gave him. And at that point... Our relationship was restored. I could have been forgiven, but restoration wouldn't have been possible. Now, there's times where repayment or, or any further action cannot be done. And restoration can happen. But often, for restoration to happen, there has to be a commitment to forgive, to, to righteousness, to do what is right. It's challenging. To bring restoration, particularly in relationships. It's not always possible. It's not always easy because so often there is not a commitment towards righteousness. If somebody has done something against me, I always forgive them. That's my response to the Lord. And it's not a feeling. It's a choice I make. It's something we do. We forgive. And Natasha and I have always had this commitment and we've always prayed, Lord, let us be quick to forgive. Let us not give a moment for the bitter waters of Mara to settle into our hearts and to contaminate us because that will become our prison. So we want to be quick to forgive. And sometimes it's two, three choices you have to make before it kicks in that you've actually, you know, know that you've forgiven. But it's our commitment, Lord. We, we, we forgive. So when somebody's done something against us or, or you know, we feel wrong in a way, we forgive. Always we forgive. And, and whenever we... Think of that situation or that person. We say, Lord, thank you that we have forgiven. This is not going to dictate our actions. There's going to be no bitterness here. And then we look for righteousness. 
Now, if somebody done something against us, then sometimes it's not possible to have the relationship restored because there's no recognition in that person that they've actually done something wrong. That there's no actual you know, desire to repair and a commitment to righteousness. And it's at that point where the relationship actually stalls and begins to break down. I can forgive them. I have forgiven them. But the lack of com commitment to righteousness means we're stuck. We, we can't move forward until that happens. And that's why the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 11, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. It's God's desire for us in our communities, for us in our relationships to live in peace and joy and to have love. And, but, but the scripture says here, strive for full restoration. Another translation, try for full restoration. While it doesn't say strive to forgive, it says forgive. Because forgiveness is absolute. Because it's my choice and nobody can take that away from me. It's a singular choice that I have to make. It doesn't depend on anybody else. Whereas a commitment to righteousness and ultimate restoration requires more than one person. And it requires another person to also have a commitment to righteousness. And that's why I must strive for restoration, but knowing that restoration is not always possible in relationships. God can restore. And even if somebody wronged me, if they do not want to, to have a commitment to righteousness, God can still restore what in my life has gotten lost. So there's still restoration possible. But in terms of that relationship, restoration then becomes very difficult. I still remain committed towards restoration. The heart of a Christian, the heart of a believer is that when there's no commitment to righteousness, I don't give up on that person and say, well, now I'm never going to restore with you. I'm always going to pursue restoration. I may not be able to even you know, have contact with that person or because of the dynamics of the situation, but I will always have a heart of restoration. And, you know, we, when we have a problem with somebody like that and a relationship's broken down, isn't it that we often think of them, that they're always in our minds, they, 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 you know, we're always thinking of the situation. And I've just learned the habit when that happens is every time I think, I pray. I pray, Lord, make restoration possible. Can you? Because I want my heart to always be in rest, in the mode. that The moment that person comes and is able to, and we are able to have a proper discussion and there's a repentance and there's a true confession and there's a willingness towards righteousness that we both share, then restoration becomes possible. And to say, Lord, restore this situation. Bring life back into this situation. Then, that's what I understand it to mean, to strive for restoration. It's always possible. It's like in many years of counseling, Natasha and I have helped many people that have had infidelity in their marriages. And we know when infidelity happens in a marriage, it, it, it's a massive point of breakdown and where bitterness can enter and difficulty. But we've seen beautiful restoration happen in, in, in situations like that. And you know what is required there is forgiveness and a commitment towards righteousness. And often when I sit with a party person that transgressed and that stepped out in the, in the relationship, then I always say to them, you have to understand that you have to be committed to do the right thing. Not just because you're trying to win your spouse back. Because your spouse has to have, make their choices. And, if you, and if, you were, if, if you broke their trust, they may never be restored in their trust. And that your relationship may have been mortally wounded and destroyed in this. But you must still be committed to do the right thing, 
even if it doesn't rescue your relationship. Because then God can bring restoration in your life because restoration always requires two parties, always requires everybody concerned to have a commitment towards righteousness. So God wants to do a work of restoration in your life. Your life he wants to restore because, and he can restore and he will restore because you will have a commitment towards saying, I'm, I recognize what is wrong. I ask forgiveness. I receive forgiveness. And then I allow by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that it will work in my life that I will have a commitment to do what is the right thing. In your relationships that God will bring restoration. So again, I want to ask you, what is it in your life that is such a disappointment, that is a struggle, that for you, you may feel like it's just, there's no hope possible. It's it failed. I want to remind you, and I, I almost forgot now, to read that, that last verse again. Where in the story, God gave them the piece of wood, the water was purified. God instructed them in his decree. And then God brought them to this place called Elam in verse 27. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. And they camped there near the water. And this Elam became this representation of a place of overflow and abundance. Because of the restoration of God. And that's what God wants to do in your life. Is he wants to bring an overflow through the restoration that he's doing. God is busy restoring in your life. Restoring to you what has been lost because of sin. And because of the contamination and the brokenness of this world. So can I ask as I pray for you today. That whatever it is in your heart that you sense. That wow this, this is just where bitterness is trying to come into my life. This is a place of disappointment, of breakdown, of hurt. Where I've been hurt by others or where I have hurt others. Where, where, where sin has caused such destruction. Can we bring that to the Lord today? And can I ask you to do these two steps with me? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you and I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I want you to, in your, with your own words, speak forgiveness over somebody. And then I would like you to make a commitment towards righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your, your word, your truth is for us in a world that is really struggling and really broken. That, that the truth of the gospel isn't just there for when everything is going well, but you give us real tools and ability of how to deal with life in a world that so often disappoints and has brings so many opportunities towards us for bitterness. And so, Father, today we want to make a commitment towards you to be people that are quick to forgive. And right now, Lord, if there's anybody in our lives that we need to forgive, I pray that by your Spirit you'll give us the grace right now to make that choice to speak out forgiveness. And if you need to, right there where you are, just say, Lord, I forgive. And just mention, if you can, or think of the person or the people or the situation and just say, Lord, I forgive. Because I cannot let my, the water of my life be bitter anymore. I cannot let it be contaminated. There will be no healing and restoration for me if I do not allow the blood of Christ that has cleansed me and is uh, to work in this situation and bring cleansing. So Lord, I ask, forgive me for what I have done wrong or forgive those that have sinned against me. And then secondly, Lord, we want to trust you for restoration. We want to pray, Lord, that where, where there's been breakdown, that there would be a restoration and that things will return to the beauty that you have planned and purposed for them. So we trust you, Father, right now. Bring restoration. But we understand for that to happen, we have to have a commitment to do what is right. 
And so, Father, if we have sinned against somebody, we ask, Lord, that you would help us. Give us the grace and the strength to do the right thing that makes it possible for that to be restored. Where people have sinned against us, Father, give us a heart and a commitment towards restoration. That even when we've forgiven, Lord, that there would be a desire and a focus in our heart to say, whenever it's possible, I will restore. But restoration requires a commitment towards doing the right thing, following God's decrees. And we trust you for that. And we bring the situations before you, Lord. And I know there's probably many situations right now where people are, where relationships are stuck, where restoration's not moving forward because there's no commitment to righteousness. I want to bring every one of those situations to you right now. We pray, Lord, bring truth and bring righteousness. And let there be repentance and confession of sin and so that restoration can take place. And I thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.